Welcome back to Birthing and Justice. I'm your host, Dr. Ruth D'Souza. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Bunwarung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Today and every day, I pay my respects to elders both past and present across so-called Australia and extend that respect to any First Nations listeners tuning in from all over the world. I'm delighted to be joined by Hannah Donnelly, who's an award-winning Wiradjuri writer and producer, and her partner Omar Saker, who's the son of Arab and Turkish Muslim migrants and a writer. So um, maybe we'll start with you, Hannah. Um, Why do you care about birthing? Uh, I think everyone should care about birthing, but my particular understanding about birth or like the realization I had around the importance of birth actually was a little bit before I was pregnant myself I I, um in younger of all my siblings so I watched you know my brothers and my sister uh, have their own babies and um lucky enough um for one of my brothers the birth of his son I was um kind of in the room for the birth as well and I had to unlearn at that point a lot of what I thought birth was Uh, and I just just at that moment like couldn't believe how uh, you know there are these narratives around birth that exist in like popular culture that are so wrong and you know how disconnected some some of our understanding of birth and birth practices have come through, you know, colonization processes and, and, and other things in the way that birth has been industrialized or what, whatever it is. You know, I'm not a health professional. I, I don't know exactly all the terms, but this um, kind of removal of birth from those um, female practitioners that had thousands of years of knowledge. Uh, anyway, so that's when I became like fascinated to learn more and I started doing my own a little bit of reading and I think one of the first documentaries that I watched that made me go what the hell was actually that business of being born one which is quite old now like 20 years or something but um then then I started looking into more practices in our country around um you know taking birth lessons listening to podcasts um getting ready for um our birth experience and yeah the hospital experience we did have a hospital experience but um yeah to go through that experience yourself you have to care about it to go through it with your siblings or your cousins or your family you know you you also have to care about it and I think there's so much that people don't know or don't get access to information um so even my friends had very different experience birth experiences to me or had very different expectations birth expectations to me um yeah the knowledge that is out there is just like it what a birthing person goes through like you know I don't know how but we need to like just shake everything up and really change how it's happening (laughs) And I'm going to get back to you about the shaking up and what needs to change, but I'll ask Omar the same question. Why do you care about birthing? Yeah, I think I think everyone should be interested in birthing. I don't think it should be a case of, oh, I'm about to be a parent, therefore, you know, time to look into it. That is often the case. But uh, now that I'm a parent and I've come across all the ways in which, uh, you know, our society is uh, not set up to support parents, not set up to support the uh, birthing 
experience, um, you know, I'm kind of like everyone needs to know about this because the barriers are really high and it's going to take a kind of collective effort to uh, improve things. So that's, I think, um, that's my that's my answer. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about the way society, you think society is not set up to support parents. Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, right, Maternity leave is a is a joke in this country, um, and paternity leave is even worse. Two weeks of Centrelink pay is what's offered. I think it's um, about to go up a little bit, but the conditions around it are kind of sus as as well. So the reality is that you have a helpless infant who needs twenty four seven care, and you have to pay the bills, right? And so immediately you're faced with really horrible choices about how much time you get to spend with this helpless and precious life. And you have to make all these compromises that are awful. And, you know, even if it's, if it's three months, is not enough. Like, it's nowhere near enough. I mean, for all the physical changes that the birthing parent goes through the physical traumas this is even in the best case scenario where you don't have complications you need so much more time than that to deal with and process um and then also to care for and instruct this child this you know into being a a person um and that's before you get into all of the things that come after it, getting into and out of buildings, the kind of disability access, um, which is like a you know a society-wide issue, and disability activists have been um, advocates have been talking about this for a long time. It's also true for parents um, with and and elderly people, uh, just being able to move your ability to move through society is. Um, diminished and changed you know you start thinking about things like things that have never crossed your mind before like if you need to go to another city how do you how do you do so what are the regulations and requirements for carrying a child can you get a taxi no actually most of the time you cannot they don't have baby seats in them um or if they do they're disgusting and you know you'll get a bloke who come out of his taxi and get into his boot and bring out this thing that you do not want to put your child in. Um, you know, they're not set up for it. They're not equipped for it. So financially and physically, I mean, just crossing the road sometimes, sometimes there's not even a, a place to, or you know, an easy access point to take the pram. Like it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how limited your movement becomes when you have a child in a pram. Uh, so there's all these ways that, uh, we're just not set up to have, uh, to or even to encourage people to have children. But at the same time, what you will often hear from politicians is, oh, the birth rate is declining and this is horrible for our society. Oh, really? It's declining? Why? Why do you think that is? Maybe because it's unbelievably expensive and arduous to go through this process when it should be the thing that we are all oriented around, the creation and nourishment of new life. Hannah's nodding her head. 
Hannah, what are your thoughts? You you had a few that you were just getting warmed up when I asked you about birthing and we switched to Omas. So ho- hopefully you've still got those thoughts there. Yeah. So many, so many thoughts around the importance. Yeah, it's it's really hard to think of like the, the conversation is so big and so, you know, there's the 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 learning and preparation pre-birth as a birthing experience itself. And then there's, you know, the postnatal um, period um, where everyone's so vulnerable. And um, I've definitely gone through the, like I was just trying to think about um, things, really key things that happened in our experience but like it's kind of also like I have limited brain brain capacity when you go through this experience um yeah it really it really it changes your life it changes your capacity in ways that you never thought or understood that it could to be a parent um and like Omar said there's just so so many there's so much pressure put on new parents to kind of move on after that life-changing experience as well um, you know, I'm back at work part time because like financially we had to, I'm very lucky I'm working from home, but yeah, there's, there's things like that. Um, and our birthing experience wasn't a, I mean, no birthing experience is an easy one. There's, um, there's different things that people go through, uh, for each experience, uh, but ours was a high risk pregnancy. Uh, I have chronic health conditions. I have, um, uh, well, it's basically like kidney disease. And so I was on uh, blood pressure medication throughout my pregnancy. I had so many appointments. The administration of being pregnant is so overwhelming, uh, which many people, like, you know, I think about, like, my sister, you know, almost being at breaking point with the appointments that she had in her second pregnancy, and I just, like, myself didn't understand why it was so stressful for her until I went through it. Um, I, I was lucky to be on a a caseload, uh, continuous caseload with the Dragonfly Aboriginal Midwife Service um, through the Western Sydney Health Local Health District. So we went through Westmead Hospital for all our appointments and it was pretty awesome that um, Dragonfly, you know, that when I started there was like two midwives they're they're growing um i think there's a few more midwives now um and so the beautiful thing about that is you could you could go through that with a high risk pregnancy but still have your midwife as your main point of contact um the obstetrician came through the dragonfly clinic um and so the midwife would be there and then i would see my kidney specialist um through the women's health clinic at westmead and like all of those systems were magically talking to each other and that's so refreshing because I know um, just from my experience with other um, chronic health um, conditions that that doesn't usually happen Um, and so I think I feel very lucky that there was that um, centralized kind of experience for us going through Dragonfly because I would have gone insane with the with the amount of appointments there was there was still a lot of um so, so we had to do like a lot of extra scans growth scans and conversations about percentiles that I didn't understand I still don't understand and uh I, I mean um if you have stopped me because I, then I'll, I'll just keep talking about the whole pregnancy journey along the way. But or, well, I guess, you know, the big thing were we, we, we went through that, like a lot of parents at the moment going through this experience in a pandemic. The start of the pregnancy was like the, the Delta kind of lockdown 
I'm coming out of that. And uh, it was really hard, you know. There was, I was, I couldn't take anyone to my appointments with me. And so, you know, you do feel very um, freaked out, you know, even as lucky as I was going through Dragonfly um, and the Dragonfly Clinic at Westmead is um, off the hospital campus. Like it's, it's they've got their own um, uh, clinic set up, which is great. So when I had Dragonfly appointments, like I could breathe and not feel stressed. But when I have appointments in the hospital, you just have that stress of going into the hospital in a pandemic and, you know, of course, thinking about how stressful it is for all those health workers and frontline workers as well and um thinking about being you know growing that baby inside you while putting it putting yourself in high-risk situations yeah and so we we ended up uh omar couldn't yeah couldn't come to any of the appointments um i had to beg one of the technicians for the first um first or second ultrasound to let omar come in at the end um, so he could hear the heartbeat for the first time. Um, things like that, you know, of course we put these things in place in a pandemic to keep people safe. But you don't think about like some of those unintended consequences of how disconnected the other birthing, like oh, how disconnected the other parent might feel um, if they're not coming along to those appointments. And, you know, they can't really share some of those key moments. Uh, then um, also the like a lot of the birthing classes were not, running face-to-face or other parent classes and things like that. And I was listening to a lot of other um, information available online and podcast reading. Um, So we ended up paying for like an intensive two-day course because um, our conversations like from the start had been like me to Omar, okay, are you going to be my birthing partner, birthing doula? Like or... Am I getting my mom to come live with us or my sister to come live with us? And that, like, because you've got to be the team leader in this in this experience. Um, you've got to know. You've got to do the, you know, the homework with me. We've got to do the lessons. We've got to have our plan. We've got to we've got to know at different stages what my like what I want it to be and how we work together. And you've got to advocate for me, right? So is that you? Are you going to be that person or is that too intense? Because that's totally fine if you want to be a support person but not the team leader of this. <laughs> yeah, and initially, Omar, like you had different thoughts to what ended up happening, but it, yeah. yeah. I just want to pick up on two points there. And one is that, you know, Hannah's talking about uh, diminished capacities and the overwhelming kind of administration involved in just going to all of your health appointments. Um, but what what she didn't say was that she was uh, also delivering the uh, Biennale of Sydney while she was pregnant that year. She was part of the curatorium that year. <laughs> so this was all happening at the same time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not so much a... a diminishment of capacity as um, an example of her extraordinary capacity. And so I wanted to pick up on that. But then also, like, yes, there were safeguards put in place because of the pandemic for health appointments and the like, but I think that they were not the right safeguards. And, you know, in particular for our situation where we 
uh, lived together and both worked from home, we were in our own bubble, at that point it just becomes cruel um, to separate us. Uh, at these very important points in the process, uh, in particular because, you know, and it doesn't matter how articulate you are, how confident you are, how capable, when you're in those offices, it's very intimidating. It's very hard to advocate for yourself. It's very hard to just say, look, sorry, pause. What do those words mean? And ask the questions that you need to ask and then retain the information. And so, you know, it's very helpful for both of us when we go to our appointments together for the other person to be taking notes. Just taking notes, like enormously helpful practice because uh, like, it turns out that most of the time we're just sitting there nodding like, yep, okay, mm-hmm, sure, yeah, totally, makes sense, cool. And then you're out of there and you're like, what just happened? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, is everything okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't fucking know. So those things are important. I wanted to to bring them up. Yes, I definitely at the start was like, team leader. I don't think so. Um, I don't know what you're on about. Uh, Basically, every line of information I have been given about birth and this process is a new horror story. And I am beyond terrified about what's going to happen and uh how able i will be in the moment um to you know do what needs to be done so it was it was very overwhelming and you know as well in this this point in time my uh debut novel was launching i was touring i was working full time and i'm telling you we were both just at our limit so that's also uh something that was playing on both of our minds and ultimately you know i list i watched the documentaries with hannah i learned a great deal about our how i say you know not just ours um, a lot of the western world's terrible hospitalization industrial complex whatever the hell they've got going on with with women i mean there again, it's horror story after horror story, and it's capitalism gone mad, and it's all of these, all of these things. So I, I learned as as much as I could how much of that I retained or was, um, you know, able to apply in the kind of crunch days. It ended up being a thirty nine hour labor. It was two days long. It was we neither of us slept. It was so intense and i think the only things that really helped ended up helping was the um exercises the uh putting pressure on um her hips and her back in certain places to help alleviate some of the pressure and the pain that she was experiencing and if i stopped she'd be like put your hands back on <laughs> like don't stop don't just stop i'm like uh <laughs> falling down but like that was uh i think the like most crucial bit of information we got from that two-day workshop which was the she births workshop and training and yeah 
I'm wondering, um, you know, the, the, there's this phenomenal load that you talk about, Hannah, you know, like, uh, and, and Omar, you know, under neoliberalism, what we've done is we've transferred anxiety from institutions onto bodies, you know, so th- there's this huge amount of labor, use labor in a different way, that's involved in bringing a new life into the work, into being a patient, you know, where you have to have this enormous amounts of literacy, as you were talking about, Omar, you know, you have to be able to decipher this information and then um, try and make it apply to your own context, right? And then apply it at a later date somehow. And it's just huge and disorientating and so different to something that you were alluding to, Omar, about a, a less industrialized, less factory way of operating, you know, and, and in this model that you're talking about, um, the Western model of birthing, particularly under biomedicine, is is very factory-like with the body like this machine, you know. And what I was hearing when you were talking about was here we have this incredible challenge of trying to navigate life and an income while pregnant, but then also postpartum trying to navigate a world architecturally that doesn't, you know, allow for very smooth passage. Yeah. And I was thinking when you were talking, what what kind of elements from your own very rich cultures came into this? You know, were, were there resources that you began to draw on um, when you sort of started noticing the limitations of this um, factory system. And I'm also aware that, you know, the, this incredible anxiety that must have permeated the experience, like you said, Hannah, of, uh, you know, the, the world's in, in pandemic mode, people are very anxious and frightened. Um, and then you're putting yourself in this situation of harm. And I, I've done some research with women birthing people in uh, Sydney and Melbourne who were pregnant during the pandemic and one of the things that they talk about is actually we were less at risk from our own partners being there you know we're uh, and, and actually this blame for possible contagion didn't actually belong to the people that love us it, it belonged to the system it was the system's responsibility and there's ways to mitigate this harm you know that don't involve excluding really important people and we're going to have these impacts for a long time to come you know the the impact of the loss of of one of the parents at these critical, joyful, profound moments like you alluded to, Hannah. So yeah, were there some cultural aspects that were really came to the foreground for you? Mm, Absolutely. I think, like I said, I was very lucky to be going through the dragonfly caseload and having an Aboriginal midwife meant, you know, there, there were certain things I didn't need to kind of unpack or explain in 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 ways that would have been really awkward with other health professionals um you know you know just to be able to express like family circumstances and maybe um historical traumas and worries of how you might bring that into your own birthing and parenting experience and having that midwife just um you know be able to hold that uh, and, and and to be able to feel safe to have those um, really serious conversations because um, I honestly have have never felt safe like that with a health practitioner before um, until I had this Aboriginal midwife. And, you know, you, you, you have to do so many forms and you have to do, you know, so many things. And, you know, mental health is a really serious part of that experience as well. So, yeah, I, and I guess I 
had hoped and dreamed that I would have maybe not a hospital birth, maybe a home birth. And, you know, there are models for birthing on country in in some different ways in different forms that might look like but that that's not kind of what I had imagined but what what ended up happening is you know with certain high-risk pregnancies you know just birthing at home is out of the question or the you know then you've got the private cost of having to um, do the birthing at home experience so some of my research into that meant that that wasn't available but um, definitely I was lucky that you know my my sister came and lived with me for um, a couple of weeks after and my mum came and stayed with me and I guess there was like different interpretations of ritual or practice in different moments that really helped you know we we don't live in the bush we live in like western sydney very overdeveloped suburb auburn and um you know so there's things like thinking about you know moments of you know bringing the baby home and how my sister had thought ahead to make sure i had like some beautiful um native sandalwood uh, oil so I could have the diffuser going because you know there wasn't going to be a smoking ceremony or things like that and yeah I guess you know if we lived in an ideal model where there was you know we talk about the village um, you know it takes a village to raise the child but this the way that we are living and working doesn't currently support that and even um, most of my family is in northern New South Wales or central, some in, um, central New South Wales or in Queensland. So even though some like my sister and my mum made it a priority to come and live with us in that first month, the golden month or different ways of different cultures have different ways of talking about those first really important weeks. Yeah, I did have support. It was important, like it was a priority for my family to look after me in that period and I'm very lucky. But there's something that Omar says, because um, all of his family is in Western Sydney, but the village needs a village <laughs> because all of them have, like all of his cousins and siblings, they all have children, lots of children, and everyone has children and we're all trying to survive financially. Um, and there isn't, you know, when we talk about it, it takes a village, like that's very romantic and, yes, it would be lovely, but um, our daily kind of circumstances don't even allow us to experience that if you do live close to your family I think I think it's a real well in my experience it doesn't it doesn't happen you need a certain set of I guess maybe it's about class as well so like you would need a certain set of circumstances to be able to have those family members caring for you for as long as you actually need it or whenever you need it that's pretty much right you know uh my brother has six children. My sister has six children. Uh, <laughs> my, my cousins all have between five to seven children each. And these are my, you know, my closest kin. And so when I'm like, I'm struggling here, they're like, suck it up. We got six kids. Like, <laughs> I don't know what you, <laughs> what you think we're going to be able to do right now. Very little. So, yeah, it is... Uh, a lovely idea that village amount of people can suddenly stop what they're doing to help you for an extended period of time. But the reality is, um, certainly for us and for many people, that's just not going to happen. But, you know, there were still plenty of moments of grace from people uh, that together helped us so much. 
as far as um, my own cultures are concerned, there really isn't um, much that I'm able to to draw on, principally because I come from a very conservative family and a very gendered interpretation of our culture. And so that knowledge exists among the women, but certainly wasn't given to me. Their kind of attitude is, you did your part at the beginning, go away, get out of here. Like, <laughs> don't ask us questions. We don't want to talk to you about this. Um, you know, we want to talk to Hannah about this. And so, you know, I think that's a really unfortunate attitude, to be honest. I think men uh, should be part of it. And I think being separated from that knowledge is in a way being separated from a part of ourselves and leads to all kinds of internal harm where men don't feel like they're part of this creation in a spiritual sense and an emotional sense. They feel cut off from it. And I think it leads to you know, all kinds of internalized um, resentment and ugliness, which, of course, patriarchy um, encourages and feeds on. So in saying that, I mean, some, like I said, like all, all of the women in my family, these are professional mothers. I mean, <laughs> these, are, these are women who have lots of babies and all the people they know have lots of babies and they just have an extraordinary wealth of knowledge and experience about uh, how to care for kids. Yeah, a lot of it comes through like those conversations that I had, you know, with your cousins, with your sister and auntie and with friends of mine, sisters and um, close friends. It's uh this the their their birth story like everyone is kind of always telling you their different birth stories um and preparing you um through the different experiences that they've had and some of those are good experiences some of those are bad but i found a lot of some of those stories were <laughs> examples of um systems not really working very well in the hospital and people feeling kind of a bit traumatized through their birthing experiences and them telling me that yeah it's just you think about how many women are holding on to those stories, how many birthing people are holding on to those stories uh, and of kind of some of that systemic violence in the birthing experiences. Uh, and, you you know, you kind of get a glimpse into it when you're pregnant and people start telling you that um, really bad birthing experience they had with that second child or whatever it was and you, you just go, wow, <laughs> this just... There's just so much that we need to do to change the way um, we bring life into this world. And, I'm, I mean, I'm just grateful that um, I felt like I spent years um, kind of unlearning some of those things around birth and was really proactive in kind of seeking knowledge and having conversations with my um, Aboriginal midwife and getting ready for the process because it was... I feel like I had control in the birthing experience up until a certain point. And then, you know, uh, post immediately post-birth, things went very different and, you know, I felt like I lost control in the hospital system a bit. But I am so grateful that, you know, my, my birthing experience was very hard. <laughs> 
it was a posterior labor and we had had a, a manual is it ECV EVC, ECV yeah the, the, the obstetrician had um, moved the, the baby a week before and <clears throat> because he was in a breech position and even what is beautiful at Westmead is that I was still you know I was adamant that I was going to have a vaginal birth and a little bit like now I look back on it and I was like quiet Oh, I just like my, I, before I'd even talked about, you know, my birth plan with my midwife, I had, I, I thought I knew exactly what my birth plan was, what my birthing experience was going to look like. I knew exactly what I was going to say to everyone if they tried to, you know, offer me medication or a pain relief. And yeah, everything went different. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but I still felt in control. Um, and, you know, we did have a vaginal birth after 39 hours and just with gas (laughs) and um and I think it took every second of preparation for that to happen because at every point even before I was in labor before I was having contractions you know the obstetricians were like you're probably not gonna have a natural birth we're probably gonna induce you um you get to this point we're not gonna let you go past 38 weeks you get to this point we're not gonna let you get here you know you're if you're easy if the baby doesn't change position you can have a consultation with our breach clinic but we probably won't let you have a vaginal breach birth but I had my midwife in every appointment with me and she knew I wanted to have a vaginal birth uh, natural well I mean natural as, as, as much as you can you know I really enjoyed the gas in labor and I was the the, the labor had just gone on for a long a long long time hadn't been progressing very fast with diet with you know my cervix wasn't dilating very fast at all and um, I was just so exhausted and I had been in the been in the bath uh, that's where I imagined you know it would all happen I'd have this glorious water birth and it wouldn't the the contractions wouldn't be painful because I'd done so much research on like you know the three layers of the uterus and how to work with my body and all of the exercises but I had a posterior baby and that is so painful so painful so I had salt water injections on my back and I was just guzzling the gas um but yeah I I said I don't can't physically hold my body anymore give me the epidural and they came in and they said if you get the epidural you're probably going to have a c-section and I was like okay um I didn't think I would agree to that but here uh, yes this yes give me the epidural and then I'll probably have a c-section you know you'll probably give me the synthetic hormones and then we'll have a c-section and you know all all of the interventions are going to cascade and I understand that and then literally 10 minutes later before the um the the person that was would give you the epidural came along I had the I had the uh you know urge to push overwhelming urge to push and then the baby was born in 20 minutes but if I hadn't if I hadn't have known how to push back on some some of those risk conversations, if I hadn't have had my midwife, the dragonfly midwives with me uh, from the start, like I probably would have agreed to have a, a C-section when I was at 30, 38 weeks, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's so overwhelming how this information is given to you. And yeah, I'm just grateful for those, the dragonfly. Just the, to- context to the medical team saying we're probably going to not let you go past 38 weeks is uh had high blood pressure and had multiple gallstone attacks 
during her pregnancy. So she was in hospital twice to deal with what is extraordinary pain, um, relentless pain from gallstones. And then three months after giving birth, ended up having emergency surgery to have the gallbladder removed. So it was serious. She did have 20 gallstones in her gallbladder. You know, like part of me just wants to push back a little bit against the kind of kumbaya, you're going to be fine. It's not that painful. It's in your mind kind of like, nah, it was fucking painful. It was stupidly painful for her. She had a posterior birth and uh, she was in agony for 39 hours and she probably... You know, if she had the right information to begin with, probably wouldn't have gone through that incredibly traumatic experience. And there were, you know, real concerns for for her and, and what was going on in her body at the at the time. So I just wanted I just wanted to add that little bit of Yeah, we didn't realise the baby was in a posterior position until quite late in in the birthing, like the contractions process is what Omar means. Yeah. Is someone woken up? Yes, someone has just woken up. Hello, darling. Hello. Hello, what's your name? Reading an interview, Nayu. Have you just woken up? Have you just woken Omar, you know, one of the things about my PhD research was I, I talked to migrant women about their experiences of giving birth in a new country, and they were recent migrants. And um, I also talked to migrant dads, and, you know, sometimes in the absence of this village that we've been talking about, there was a lot of pressure on this partner you know, to do all kinds of things that traditionally had been distributed, you know, like Hannah was talking about sharing a bit of the load with um, her mum and her sister, but you being the team leader, I, I really like this team leader thing. And, and I'm dying to ask Hannah if she's a Virgo, but I won't. She's a cancer, <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, there you go. Very practical, aren't they? Well, no, I could have that completely wrong. But anyway, but you know, yeah, I'd love your thoughts about gender and and fathers um, in these services that um, are supposedly family friendly, but often aren't. And any thoughts you might have? Yeah, that's a really big question and a big topic. And um, you know, I think I'm maybe lucky in one sense in that I'm queer as well, and so um, my experience with my uh, queer beloveds has been one of mothering each other, shaping each other, being part of a kind of chosen family. And that's been a very instructive process, you know, a very generative process. Um, and I don't think many men have that experience. And so instead have these very rigid ideas of what masculinity entails and what fatherhood entails. And so very, very glad to not subscribe to any of that nonsense and instead, you know, be able to kind of envision a different way of being uh, a parent. And, you know, that's, I think, the word I want to focus on rather than father. I didn't grow up with a father. I was raised by women, by 
extraordinarily strong Arab migrant women. And I learned enough from them. You know, I remember very clearly hearing my mum uh, say when I was younger, I'm his, I'm his mum, I'm his father, I'm his best fucking friend too, while yelling at someone else uh, about, <laughs> uh, you know, and that kind of speaks to how she was experiencing single motherhood, single parenthood, having to encompass um, everything expected of multiple genders. And so, you know, I think for all the fixations on gender, that is true of so many people, you know, single fathers and single mothers who have to uh, give all of themselves to the process which encompasses what is traditionally ascribed to femininity or masculinity. And I think once you get past those arbitrary and limiting constructs, you're just in a much healthier space. And that is something that's been very interesting for me, thinking of fatherhood, thinking of myself as, a, as capable of generating life. And being part of this new becoming and occupying these roles of support and service, which is really just love. And, you know, I don't, again, I don't think men, are, especially in, in my community, you know, which is uh, not just the recent migrant community, but uh, speaking to a poorer uh background, a poor a socioeconomic background as well. Um, you know, I think maybe their idea of support and love is purely financial, is like, this is what I'm able to give to support this scenario, and you got to do the rest. And, you know, it's not enough, not by any measure. Um, so I'm glad that I have been able to learn so much and to be part of this process and you know not to be all poetic about it because it's been unbelievably fucking hard and uh <laughs> it's the hardest thing i've ever done and it's broken me um over and over and over again but it's important to recognize that what has been breaking again and again and again are the parts of myself that are that need to break and it's more about what I am growing in those places to replace what broke. It's more about what I'm becoming, that for all that it is arduous, is incredibly worthwhile. And I really, I think the one thing that I really want to say is I complain a lot. <laughs> I complain a lot. Especially when people ask me how things are going, right? Complain a lot. It's really fucking hard. I'm so tired. Uh, <laughs> I'm so, so tired. And uh, But what I'm complaining about, all of it comes from the pressures that capitalism is putting on me. It is not coming from my child. It is not coming from being part of this new stage of life, which is just extraordinarily loving and beautiful and just wondrous. If I didn't have to work during this time, this would be transformative and 
again, yeah, sublime. And instead, it's been incredibly difficult and heartbreaking. You know, it's really hard to hear because I'm working from home. It's really hard to hear my child crying in another room because, you know, he wants to play with me. He wants to be with me. Or it's really hard to see my partner struggling. And when she's working from home and I'm trying to entertain him, you know, she struggles for the same reasons. So my complaints, when I complain, and if you follow me on Twitter, you will see me complaining. Uh, <laughs> I need to be clear that it's coming from external pressures and pains. And it is not coming from my child. I was struck by something you said, Hannah, about how Dragonfly, you know, this culturally specific service really gave you a lot of confidence to challenge things or, you know, gave you some knowledge, particularly when the goalposts were shifting, you know, you felt like you could stand up for yourself. But you also said that when you were then back in the main hospital or in other parts of the health service that weren't Dragonfly, that that it was a bit more intimidating for you. And so, yeah, I just wondered maybe for the last question, um, talking about, you know, what could be done differently in services? Absolutely. Yeah, you can, I could feel it in my body even. Like I could feel the difference when I was at a, you know, dragonfly midwife appointment out of the hospital or when I was in an appointment inside the hospital, like the, just the stress the way you move through that space um, because I knew I wasn't going to understand a lot of what was said. And I think the, the Women's Health Clinic at Westmead, like their, mid, their, their model of care, I think, you know, that that's still my, my experience in that was still positive outside of Dragonfly as well. But then when, yeah, the process of kind of the, I think it's like how people talk to you in terms or health professionals might talk to you in terms of risk. So when I was talking to the more specialized doctors, I, you know, you have to try and do a bit of algebra in your head and, and try and understand these very important things that they're talking to me about. Uh, and they're telling me that there's, um, you know, I'm this at risk of this happening or this happening, and so this intervention might be necessary. Yeah, the the risk framework I really struggled with, and you know, not being a medical professional, I don't really understand um, how those decisions are being made and what at what point you give that advice to a patient, a, you know, like a, a pregnant person or someone giving someone in labor or someone who's just had a baby and you're in the maternity ward the maternity ward experience yeah was uh, I wasn't prepared enough for that experience and I I think you've just gone through this incredibly physically challenging mentally the most mentally physically exhausting experience life-changing kind of moment which is both the hardest thing you could ever do with your body and the most exciting thing and then you're kind of shuffled in shuffled out of the you know that birthing environment into the maternity ward and unfortunately we, we still had the COVID restrictions so after that 39 hours of labor and then doing the baby um, business you know weighing and all of that stuff oh and I was lucky I was able to the the midwives knew that I wanted to keep my placenta, so they had all the work ready to go for that. And then we go, we go to the 
maternity ward and Omar's not allowed in with me and the baby and I, I, started, I felt like I could just feel things starting to, to slip out of my control at that point. And, yeah, then for Nayir, baby Nayir ended up going into NICU the next morning and having some, like, having some pretty big tests for what was suspected to be like a bilious spew, a green spew, which is very serious. But like, at, you know, people, the doctors came and spoke to me and, and to Omar, but I was very fragile and had no idea what was happening. And I mean, at that point, I couldn't even walk. I was in so much pain. I had a, I had some a grade two tear, had stitches and the NICU is uh, beneath the maternity ward like a different level and um, I wanted to keep up breastfeeding so like it interrupted the beginning of our breastfeeding experience I had some really big challenges breastfeeding and thankfully uh, one of the best things Omar ever like not one of there was many best things but one of the best things he did in like the first week or two was get a lactation consultant to come home and and work with me and the baby to to look at how I was breastfeeding because he had a friend of a friend whose mum was a lactation consultant and it was like yeah that was amazing but um uh yeah that experience like NICU experiences for um birthing people is just is very traumatic and ours was only short but yeah the way that something can happen so fast um where you feel like you're not actually giving consent for these things maybe to happen or you do they do uh that you do they they do tell you but I honestly could I could not tell you what they said uh what the what the tests were or how any of it happened. I just know that I was separated from the baby for a, pe- for a period of time, for a day and a bit. Just quickly say that I think the problem began when they uh, separated us. You know, I was forced to go home two hours after he was born. And uh, I can't tell you how alienating and painful that was to have gone through a 39 hour labor with Hannah and I was there every minute and then suddenly there's this life and he's fine he's okay and it's gorgeous and wondrous and amazing and then two hours later they're like you gotta go and I was like why why because in the maternity ward there's two beds per room and the other bed could be occupied by a woman who doesn't want a man there and but the bed was empty was empty for the next four days, but I was not allowed to stay overnight. I was not allowed to be there with Hannah. I couldn't advocate for her. I couldn't do it. Of course, she was out of it, you know? Of course, she was out of it. So, you know, and I think this is maybe another part of that genders enforced kind of separation, this idea of care for women. I totally understand where the sentiment is coming from, but the reality of it is it, it's separating families in that moment i think it's incredibly harmful yeah absolutely i think that's exactly when things started feeling like i I didn't have control anymore yeah and i know i understand that our hospital systems are under like an enormous amount of pressure but like in public systems and yeah we don't have birthing suites so the whole family you know can can relax for them in some hospitals there are birthing suites i know where where um public hospitals where if you're in a particular caseload, maybe you would be lucky enough to get the birthing suite and be able to spend that first night together as a family, but that wasn't the case for us. And, um, yeah, this is a bit heartbreaking. And, you know, in this, if I had have been able to have 
a birth experience outside of hospitals, uh, outside of the hospital, I think all of all of that kind of would have been mitigated. But I, it's just um, we're not there. It's not it's not how things work. It's not publicly accessible. I just have to say I'm so so sorry that that happened for you. You know, it's really rough to have gone through so much and then have the health system impose even more pain and you know what should have been a time of just utter joy and just soaking up this new fam you know this experience of being a new family a new kind of family for you all was kind of stolen from you really eh? yeah but such a privilege to have you both share this incredibly personal experience that's not me doing heavy breathing that's 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 a that's the baby, in case anyone's wondering. And and we're just keeping everything real in this podcast. But um, I just think the right conversations always happen if we're just present and attuned and uh, open. And you know, for me, like what a what an absolute honor to just be in in your presence, including Nayir, who's been very very good. Thank you. It's it's been very enjoyable to talk about all of it. Next time on Birthing and Justice. Appreciating different diverse ways of knowing, that's one thing. What are we doing about it? And that's where justice comes in. How do we repair? I'll be speaking with Rwandan-born Dr. Favorite Iradakunda. She's a nurse scholar currently based in Amherst, Massachusetts. Her work is dedicated to advancing the holistic well-being of African diasporic women, families and communities. If you enjoyed this episode, let me know by leaving a review and spread the word by telling a friend. You can listen to all our previous episodes over at ruthdesouza.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Birthing and Justice with Dr. Ruth D'Souza is written, hosted and produced by me and recorded at my home on the traditional lands of the Bunmarung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Our sound design is by our editor, Olivia Smith. The artwork for the show comes from Atong Atom and was designed by Ethan Sang and Raquel Solia composed our music. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you in our next episode.